So, speaking of salvation, today's sermon is, who can be saved? How? Who can be saved? How? Uh, Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we give thanks for your word, which brings salvation. Your very son, who is your word forever and ever, who has come to us in our flesh as your lamb to be the once and for all atoning sacrifice that we might be saved. Oh Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus and by his blood shed for us that we might hear you, that we might believe and trust in, trust our very lives, trust our very families, trust everything we have on the revelation that you bring through him. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, We'll continue today to hear from that central passage of scripture of the Old Testament, the fourth servant song of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through Isaiah chapter 53. But we're going to begin today turning to the New Testament, to the New Testament, to Mark's gospel, chapter 10. We're picking up at verse 24 of Mark's gospel, chapter 10. You'll remember this passage from uh, certainly your Bible study in general, but definitely from our sermon series on the gospel according to Mark. Uh, last year, and you may remember, I spent a lot of time on Mark chapter 10. So just picking up in the story here, the uh, rich young man has come to Jesus and asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what must I do to be saved? And you may remember that this man is very uh, successful. He's very engaging. um, And he also has a whole lot of wealth. And Jesus calls him to sell everything he owns and give it to the poor, and then come and follow Jesus. Jesus, who is at this point uh, within a matter of weeks away from the cross. Uh, The man, as you may remember, is disheartened and turns away from Jesus because he has a whole lot of stuff. And he's actually more interested in the stuff that he has than the Savior. And picking up on that story at verse 24, Jesus has just said how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, to be saved. In other words, it's really hard when you're really successful in your career, if you have a whole lot of stuff, not to worship that. So picking up on that, and the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, you notice he uses the term children here, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then he continues, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? The big question, who can be saved? Can anybody be saved based on what you're saying, Jesus? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things 
are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. I enjoy from time to time reading Whitney Williams, who is a writer for the Christian news source World. I've commended that news source to you before. I encourage you to, to track with that news source. There's a lot of bad news out there, and World deals with the bad news, but from a Christian perspective, and has really good series for children and teenagers, too. But Whitney Williams, uh, I enjoyed reading her post from just this past week. She was talking about the fact that Every night around 7.30, uh, she and her husband and their three boys, she has a seven-year-old son and then twins who are three, uh, they gather for family prayers each night as they prepare to, uh, to prepare for bed. It's, and uh, her husband, who's been playing with the boys after he's gotten home from work, yells out, it's time to pray. But what that usually uh, then involves is the seven-year-old boy, the older brother, he rides down the hallway on his hoverboard and usually runs over one of the two little brothers, one of the twins, and then daddy is having to comfort uh, the little boy who's been, you know, hurt or surprised or insulted by being run over. And then what happens usually, there's several minutes of wrestling, uh, you know, among daddy and the three boys. And so, uh, she says that usually what she does then is she takes that extra five minutes to go uh, throw some of the laundry uh, in, in the washing machine. But eventually the call comes out, waiting on you, old girl. Um, her husband has taught the boys to call out to their mom like that, and she chuckles to herself, waiting on you, old girl. And then she finally leaves the laundry room and comes in and plops down uh, at the twins' bed where everybody, everybody is there at those two race car sheet, you know, twin beds there in the twins' room. And Jake, one of the two twins, Jake Williams, almost always volunteers to pray first. And she says, I've come to count on the opening line of his prayer, which is invariably this. Thank you for God. She says, the first time that little Jake prayed that prayer to God, thank you for God, she and her husband chuckled. But then she began to appreciate the incredible theological and spiritual depth of that prayer. And so now she looks forward to when Jake volunteers to pray, and the first line of his prayer to God is, thank you for God. Where would I be, she writes, without you, O Lord? She says, realizing what a treasure it is to have God, God's very existence, I join my son now in his thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for you. She writes, do not hinder them, Jesus said. The kingdom belongs to such as these, these who haven't yet learned the proper way to pray, these who come to the Father like they come to their earthly parents, with silly words, hysterical laughter, wiggly bodies, sticky hands, and oftentimes unique viewpoints on God and faith. And all this brings us back to, of course, she just quoted from Mark chapter 10. 
Mark chapter 10, I'll remind you, we spent a lot of time on this last year. Remember the sequencing now. We've got this juxtaposition of these two different encounters as Jesus very clearly in his last weeks of public ministry, in his third year of public ministry, the last week he's heading toward Jerusalem. He has two big encounters. And the first one is this. Mark tells us this. Remember, this is one of Mark's sandwiches. Remember how we learned about Mark's sandwiches? Um, interpolations, if you're a literary person. Intercalations, if you're a rhetorical person. It's rhetorical intercalation, but we just call it a sandwich, right? Uh, because it's Mark likes the threesomes, right? The triads. And remember, there's three things that happen here. We get the people bringing their children to be blessed by Jesus. And Jesus' disciples led by the apostles, running these people off and saying, don't bother the teacher. And Jesus then rebukes his apostles and disciples and says, no, 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 let the little children come to me, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. And then Jesus lays his hands on these children, blesses them, and tells his disciples, you're not going to enter the kingdom. You're not going to be saved. You cannot be saved unless you trust like a child. Then we get this polar opposite encounter that Mark tells us about. Again, see, in the sandwich, now we're in the meat of the story, right? We've got the bread on the one side, right? Uh, the children's story. And then now we're in the meat. And this rich, successful, winsome, very religious young man who can say, I, I've... I've, I've obeyed all the second half of the Ten Commandments, the second tablet. Uh, nevertheless, uh, wants to know what, what more do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And you can't get any further opposite in the ancient world from helpless little children who have no property and nothing. The only thing they can rely on is their parents, all the way over to a young man who is successful. This is the future you know, president of, of everything. I mean, this is the guy. And Jesus tells this guy, you've got to be more like a child. You're trying to negotiate with me and figure out what I need to add on spiritually. You know, I got a couple hours for you, Jesus, on Sunday. What, just tell me what transaction I need to do to get this thing done so I can get into heaven. And Jesus says, no, 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 you've got to go all the way back over here. Give it all up. And then trust totally in me. And Jesus is on his way to the cross. And the man turns away from Jesus sad because he loves his stuff. And he doesn't want to be like a little child. Remember that? And then the, 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 well, that's the other side of the sandwich. Well, sure enough, this is when James and John, it's not just them. They're just kind of leading the pack, right? We, we've been reading about the fact that on the way to, when Jesus is on the way to the cross and they're arguing about, I'm going to be the secretary of state. No, I'm going to be the, the secretary of the Department of Housing. and No, I want to be this. No, I want to be that. I want to be the vice president. And James and John's come to Jesus and they say, when you come into your kingdom, we want to sit at your right and your left. Remember this? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And that's only the fathers to give. By the way, it's going to end up being two thieves on the right and the left when the kingdom comes. But th that's the story. So the meat in the middle of this sandwich 
Jesus teaches his disciples and teaches us. Nobody out of their own might, mind, beauty, or self-justification can enter the kingdom. It's impossible with people. And rich people are severely jeopardized. But it's impossible for anyone. And his disciples are astounded. What have we been doing spending the last couple of years following you? Nobody's going to get to be saved and get to be with the kingdom. And Jesus says, what's impossible with people is possible with God. God can do it. God will give it to you. With man, it's impossible to be saved. With God, it's possible. Well, how? We don't get the answer in the meat in the middle of the sandwich. Instead, we get it with a little banner, like the little toothpick at the very end on the other side of the bread that tells us what's going on. Remember this? Jesus, after teaching James and John, it's not about you being in charge. People who want to go with me are going to have to serve. Again, as I keep reminding you, right? Mark 10, 45. Here's the answer. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 10, 45. Back to the middle. Back to the middle, 10, 27. That's the answer. It's going to take him, and we're going to have to follow him and trust him in the life of self-giving service. Got it? Mark 10, 45, 10, 27. It's possible with God through the Son who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many that many language, horse hooking us back to the fourth suffering servant song. Isaiah, Isaiah 38 through 55, God's redeeming grace. This is the ramp up on the story of God's redeeming grace for Israel and for Judah and the daughter, daughters of Zion. And as it turns out, even a lot bigger than that for the Gentiles too. We have this issue of the restoration and the return to Judah and Jerusalem for the Jews who've been in exile, been in exile in Babylon, first under the Babylonian Empire, then under the Persians. When the Persians take out the Babylonian Empire, remember God raises up. And Isaiah tells us, as he prophesies this, Isaiah prophesies this two centuries, amazingly, before it happens. Names the anointed of God who's going to allow the return um, the Persian emperor named Cyrus, my anointed, my Mashiach, the Lord says, my anointed for this purpose. But let me tell you this, Cyrus is not the savior we need. He sets in motion the physical return. But remember, physical stuff is not going to save you. You can have a billion Jewish people in the geographical sight of Israel, and that will not save you. 
my dispensationalist friends, I am sorry, that is not, that is not the center of the gospel. That may be part of the story that God is laying out, but that's not the heart of the matter, right? It's not the physical return that Cyrus puts in motion. We need another redeemer, a different level redeemer, a goel, a kinsman redeemer. And the Lord in Isaiah 38 through 55 starts talking about being the kinsman redeemer. Gaal, he will, he will step in to save his family. This is what's going on here. So God's word in Isaiah 38 through 55 is talking about two kinds of restorations. You don't just need the physical stuff. You don't just need your house back after a storm, right? You don't just need to get your family all back together physically. You need them to be saved spiritually because that's the eternal matter. And so then we start hearing about um, a servant who is going to come. A servant who is going to be the ultimate redeemer. We're not talking about Cyrus anymore. We're talking about the servant. And it turns out we're not talking about Israel. Even though Israel was called to be the son and the servant, it's clear that there's somebody else that increasingly is talked about. By the time you get to the second and the third servant songs, you know, Isaiah 42, uh, moving to Isaiah 49, and then to Isaiah 50. By 49 and 50, we are talking about somebody else who's stepping in to save Israel. And actually, increasingly, it becomes evident to save people from the nations. And what gets really interesting is God keeps talking about how he's going to come, how the arm of the Lord himself is going to be revealed, how the Lord himself will come. You get that already in Isaiah 40, and it keeps developing out in the servant songs. And in between the servant songs, and as we said last week, it brings us all to that fourth of the four servant songs in Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through Isaiah 53. Um, we'll open this passage up again today. We'll continue to turn to it as we did last week. Let me just remind you the structure of this passage. Remember, this is a poetic masterpiece. This is not only the most, arguably, the most important theological piece, the centerpiece of the entire Old Testament leading into the New Testament. It is also a masterpiece of poetry. We've got the five stanzas, the five stanzas, three verses each. It, it's all laid out, and it's a chiastic structure, right? So A off A. B off B and C in the middle. Today we're going to be looking uh, primarily uh, to the third and fourth stanzas. We spent some time on the first three actually last week. Uh, let's just remind ourselves of the structure here. So you've got 52, 13 through 15. That is the prologue introducing the exaltation and the enigma of the servant. I talked about this a lot last week. The exaltation of the servant high and lifted up, he's God himself. That, that language in combination in Isaiah only refers to God. Chapter 6, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And chapter 57, it's God language, and all of a sudden we've got it referred to the Lord himself, God himself is referring to the servant this way. 52, 13. 
But remember, all of a sudden, we, we see, okay, he's exalted, high and lifted up, and exalted. We add on that. But then we have this enigma of rejection. And the rulers of the earth are astounded at him. We'll, we'll come back to that next week. I introduced that last week. Let's keep going. The second stanza, 53, 1 through 3, introduces the key questions of Revelation concerning his introduction and his outwardly unimpressive history. And I went to this verse last week. I want to take you to it again. 53.1. Who has believed what has been revealed to them? That's really the language there. Who has believed what has been revealed to them? Um, to whom? Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These are the two key, key questions. These are the questions about who can be saved. Ha'aman, in that 53-1 there. Aman, to trust, to believe. Where's the first time we see that particular phrase in the Old Testament? Yes, if you know your Old Testament, you got it right. Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credited him as righteousness. That's how you're saved. That's what the Apostle Paul keeps talking about all through his letters, connecting 53, Isaiah 53, with that Genesis 15, 6. Yep, it's right there, but see, God is going to have to give that to you. You can't work on that yourself. You have to surrender to him. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We looked at these verses last week, verse 2. For he grew up before him, before the Lord, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Is a root out of dry ground impressive? Does it grow fast? No. <laughs> this, this is Jesus now. This is the servant. Nobody's looking at him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. No movie star there. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now we get to the uh, third stanza. The significance of the servant's suffering is explained. Verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53. His substitutionary, sacrificial burden, a vicarious sacrifice, him in our place, over and over again, his atonement for our sin, for our iniquity, our twistedness, our avone, our rebellion. And it's clearly expressed now as the Lord doing this. The Lord is doing this to Abdi, his, his own servant, my servant. The Lord is doing this. And then the fourth stanza, 53, 7 through 9. We'll come back to the third and the fourth, like I said. The servant's voluntary completion of the sacrifice. His willing death in your place, in our place. His undeserved violent death brought to its conclusion. And then the twist the prophetic mystery of his burial at the close of this stanza. 
And then next Sunday on Easter, we will pick back up, circling around all this to the, the fifth stanza. Uh, we'll do A and off A. Uh, the surprising and lasting triumph and exaltation of the servant who bore our sin. That's how we're going to be saved. Um, today, though, let's, let's dig in on the third and, and the fourth stanzas here. Surely he has borne our griefs, verse 4, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. He was run through. He was run through. He was run through. Are, are you seeing the crucifixion? The nails, the spear into the side. Yeah, it, it's here. It's here. 700 years before Jesus is, is born, it, it, it's here. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. But, you know, remember I told you there's a sequence in here. There's, a, there's an escalation here. Iniquity is worse. That's dealing with our very twisted, and not, not just for sins that we commit, but our very sinfulness, right? He's, he's dying for that too, that we might be delivered from that. Not just individual sins, not just count them up, everything bad I've done, but the very sinfulness within me. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Want to say shalom? And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You know, sheep are not just really bad animals. Y'all understand this, right? It's just, you know, sheep, you know the way sheep are. Know anybody like a sheep? You know, it's kind of nice. Wait a minute, this over here looks really good. Let me go get this too. Hey, I know I've already eaten enough, but look at it, look at this over here. Look at look at this over. Wait a minute, where am I? Am I lost? Yeah, you get lost really fast being a sheep, right? Because you just follow your immediate desires. It's not that you're the worst thing ever. You're not the worst animal ever. But all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the twistedness of us all. That's the close of that third central, obviously centrally important stanza. And then let's go to the fourth here. Continuing this substitutionary atonement for us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. This is beautiful poetry because the mouth at the beginning of the stanza and the mouth at the end, there's going to be no deceit in his mouth. Here he's opening not his mouth as he voluntarily goes to the cross. What we have here is the procession in this sequence, okay, this the stanza, the procession, the execution, and the burial. Three verses. It's all here in the fourth stanza of the servant song. You follow me? The lamb led to the cross, the execution, 
and the burial. So, verses 7, 8, 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Are you getting the message? The mouth is a big thing here. And Christian, the mouth is a big thing, not just for Jesus, but for anybody who follows him. Are you hearing me? What comes out of your mouth reflects your soul and your heart. Okay, so we have the procession to the execution. Now we move to the execution. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Let's pause right there, and then we'll come back to verse 9, back to what happens with the burial and his mouth having no deceit in it. Let's just remember from a Jewish standpoint, crucifixion to be hung on a tree under Deuteronomy chapter 21, anyone hung on a tree is cursed of God. The Romans considered crucifixion to be our barbaric, brutal, ultimate torturing death. Barbaric in two senses. One, it's obviously incredibly brutal and violent, but secondly, only for the barbarians. A Roman citizen, no way crucified. You do that to the barbarians, barbaric. And not just any barbarians, but the revolutionaries, the insurrectionists, the really bad criminals, and ultimately, it's a death for bad slaves. A lot of slaves crucified who caused problems in the Roman Empire. You know this term that's being used that's prophesied about Jesus, Eved Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, can mean servant or slave. Whole new meaning to servant, slave. Whole new meaning. There he is on the cross. Paul gets this. He understands really the whole gospel in light of what's being prophesied at this point in Isaiah 53. He says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, hung on the tree. Um, Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, Isaiah 53, and raised alive for our justification, 53, Isaiah 53, back to Genesis 15.6. Romans 5, 6. For just at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you of first importance that that I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Isaiah 53. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, Isaiah 53. And Jesus took it on himself. Remember Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours. Jesus took the cup. The lamb went. His voluntary completion as our sacrifice 
his blood shed. So we have the procession, the lamb who didn't open his mouth. His mouth is clean. Verse 8, the execution by oppression and judgment, and he submits to it. And then 9, the burial. Now just let me go ahead and address this on the back side of this. His mouth is without deceit, so he does not deserve to be buried with criminals. And let's just see what is going on here. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. You see that mouth closing out the stanza? That's Jesus, and that's the way we're supposed to be in following him. No deceit in our mouths. But let's look at this grave thing. Um, there's two different words for grave in the Hebrew. The first one is the common one in the medieval Masoretic text, the Aleppo Codex, etc. And what, what the ESV is translating off of is off of that. It's a little bit confusing, but if you know the Jesus story, you can still get the fact that he's assigned a grave with the wicked. He's going to be in a mass grave because he's been crucified. But all of a sudden, out of the blue, Joseph of Arimathea, you remember the story, the rich man comes and buries him in his tomb. But thank God for the discovery of the great Isaiah text at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scroll, the great Isaiah text, Qumran, Isaiah, right? That bait there before the death word here, the way it's translated, is actually part of a word. Bamuth, it's a word for hill, and it can mean a grave in a hill, like Joseph's cave in the hill. And to understand what I'm saying in Hebrew, you're supposed to have parallel juxtaposition, and here we have it. So that verse should actually be translated the way that New Revised Standard Version and several others have it. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. You hear the poetry now? They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. So get this. This is incredible. Isaiah 53, 9 prophesied, predicted exactly the way Jesus would not only die and initially be assigned to be buried with plural wicked, shireen, right? But is actually buried in the hill carved cave tomb of a rich man. Now let me remind you that Dead Sea Scroll, I'll come back to this next week too because we've got another point on this next week on Easter Sunday. It's a thousand years older than the Aleppo Codex. This is what God was talking about. It's very precise. So no wonder Matthew and Mark make such a big deal out of John also. Joseph of Arimathea and Jesus being buried according to the scriptures in the rich man's tomb. Though he was assigned a place with the wicked initially. And why? Well, God tells you he had no deceit in his mouth. He was totally innocent. That's our kinsman redeemer. Um, I was visiting with Adelaide Ramsey yesterday in the hospital, and she was saying, isn't God wonderful? 
I thank him every day for answering my every need. He does, you know, she said, even the ones I haven't thought of. And then she said, I don't know what people do who don't know the Lord or who say they know the Lord, but don't worship him and follow him consistently. She said, how could you live day to day, Sunday to Sunday without being before the Lord and knowing him, that he fulfills every need? And then she says, um, he does, you know, and she laughed and she said, sometimes I try to help him, but that's foolish. That's when I get myself into trouble. And I said, yes, Adelaide, we really need the Lord to take over, don't we? I said, that's what I'm reading in Isaiah right now. The Lord had to step in to save us. He's our redeemer. And like Jake Williams says, thank you, God, for God. Thank you for yourself. You're our savior. Who can be saved? Who can believe the report, the revelation? The ones that God gives it to. And he stepped in to save. In Isaiah 1, 15 through 20. Let me just go back to this as we move towards the invitation. Um, The Lord says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And then he says this, come now, let us debate or reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. On that central passage, remember I told you, you got to remember the whole passage here now, but on that verse 18, Alec Matier, my favorite commentator on Isaiah, says this. He points out that snow and wool are both naturally white. They are not made white by bleaching. The Lord's promise then through Jesus is not just that he's going to cleanse us. He's going to make us new. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. We're not talking about a bleaching we're talking about a new heart, a new soul, a new you. Will you come to him? Will you come to him? You got to go outside the gate to come to him. Now, let me tell you this. It's not, it's not the popular thing to do right now, particularly in 2021. I can tell you this now. This is not our culture here. But here's the invitation, Hebrews 13, 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such as these belongs the kingdom. And you must trust. You must be like a little child. If you're not, it's not going to be revealed to you. Okay? And then Jesus says this. To the mamas and the daddies and the grandparents and the single people struggling with issues, he says this. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle 
and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come on, children, come to the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray.